let me just say this. It is May the 30th, 2004. This is Matthew Pirro, and we're continuing our study in the book of James. Yaakov. Give me a J, give me an E. Give me a G, Jesus. Well, I'm sure as all of you may know, or yet to find out, it's amazing that uh, whenever you, you go to study the Word of God, how you get headaches, you get sinuses that just pour out of your your nose, and just every obstacle you can imagine just tries to surface itself. Usually I get tired. I'll fall asleep trying to study the Word. So i got to be somewhere where it's loud and active and keeps me alert and drink lots of espresso. So... Amen. Let's turn to the book of James, chapter 4. I know, the, the Leaning Tower of Pisa for a Bible stand. Does anybody know what we talked about last Wednesday? If you didn't, you should have gotten the tape or the CD by now. We talked about James 3, taming the tongue, the power of speech or servanthood in speech. Uh, it's by our words that we have Life and death. Those are two elements that lie, or lie, huh? that reside in our tongue. And continuing on, on that same idea, that same track, we don't just go to chapter 4 and James all of a sudden pauses and goes to a different idea. It's with the same thread behind it of taming that tongue and being godly with your speech. And there's five things that we're going to talk about today. How are the breaks apart James 4? In submission to. Let me go ahead and read verse 1 through 3. We'll go on to the first one. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. So if I stop right here, I know that in order to get something or to accomplish something for God that I know is God's will, I have to make sure that I'm asking with the right motives. Now, there are several times when there are things where I'm not really sure. Is this God's will or isn't it God's will? Is this something that's too small and too petty that he doesn't really care about that I should just go ahead and take care of? Or is it something that he is very concerned about and is it, even though it's a very small thing, it may be a key part in the overall plan for my life? The first thing is is to, to look at what exactly are we talking about as far as prayer, but this is using the tongue as well. What are your motives within your heart? Because like we studied last week, whatever is in your heart will come out in your speech. Let's continue on. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. I'll just be straight up honest. There are times when I have asked for money or prayed for money that Jesus would give so that I could bless somebody else. And I'm... I was just being a numbskull at that point in time. When I actually received the money, I didn't realize that I had originally prayed for it until after I spent it on something else. 
just as like a round of golf or going out to eat. And I remembered after it was spent, I looked at the receipts. I went, oh, man, I prayed for this money to bless somebody else, and I forgot. Well, does it all stop right there? No. My motive was corrective. I wasn't necessarily following my, my flesh. I just forgot what I'd originally prayed for from my original motive. Going back to that pure motive, wanting to bless someone, uh, I didn't pray for my money. I went and did, did, diligently sought after additional money, got it, and blessed that person as well. So when we're reading James, he does, he does really harp on people who are carnal. Now remember, he was involved with the church in Jerusalem. He was heavily involved with Peter. So I'm sure he saw or was actively interacting with the Pharisees, people who had this form of religion but did not live it. They lived according to the flesh. It aims and it points at a lot of these things in people. But the way we take it into account and apply it in our lives is that not necessarily the outwardly things that are real noticeable. Like I'm not going to run up to Banning and say, you know what, man, you've been quarreling and fighting everywhere you go. You need to cut it out. It's the beginnings of that. It's the how to, to cancel out, how to, to squelch the things that can become very carnal and therefore produce death. So I guess the, the first section of what James is focusing on is men or people who submit to the flesh. Let's go to uh, John chapter 15. you're an avid Keith, Keith Green fan, you'll know verse 1 very well. I am divine, you are the branch. Jesus must have been from uh, South Louisiana. <laughs> John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no Farut, none. Farut. The farut is on fire. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Now, does everyone have like a little uh, note right there, right by prunes? The Greek word for prunes also means cleans. So, uh, we're going, we'll, we'll tie this in, but I'll just say it out loud. In Hebrews chapter, I think it's uh, 12, talks about discipline. How we endure hardship as discipline. Disciples, that's where the root word comes from. So we endure this discipline as a pruning or as a cleaning. Discipline usually comes with an authoritative word at a certain subject. You're doing a specific action that's wrong. Well, when we read the word, it convicts our hearts. It renews our minds. And, and disciplines that area, or it cleans, or it prunes that area. It teaches us how to tame the flesh. Every branch that bears, it does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. That last statement, that's the reason why we endure hardship. That's the reason why there are seasons in our life where it, everything does not seem to go right. It seems in, in the natural that God's not with us. Every single week we're enduring some type of trial, whether internal or external, like we talked about two messages ago. But regardless, the fact is, I, I, you need to encourage yourself. Tell yourself, 
no, I'm not going to be discouraged. I'm not going to be depressed about these continuing trials that I'm enduring because I know from the Word every branch that bears fruit gets clean. It gets disciplined. So the very fact that you're enduring trials means that you're being fruitful for God. And the outcome of the trials you're enduring now is to produce even more fruit later on. Does that make sense? Praise God. It fires me up. You are, verse 3, you are already clean because of the word. Now remember like I said that that word prune in Greek means to clean. So as we read this word, we get pruned. I'll continue on. I have spoken, uh, I'm sorry, you, you have already been clean because of the, of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. Whenever you want to sit down and evaluate and try to to decide in the spirit, what is somebody's motives? What is a ministry's motive? Or really, what are they about? Are they really from God or are they not? You begin to look. The actions that they do, is it in their strength or is it in God's? Men can produce fruit. And it can have a facade of being godly fruit. But give it a little bit of time or do a little more investigation, and you can find that it's generated by them and not by God. Anything built by man is what? It's shifting sand. It's not worthy of being built on. Anything built by God is a rock. Bottom line, either you build on the rock or get crushed by it. That's what Jesus said himself. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Most um, malfunction doctrine, whether it be Joseph Smith, Jehovah's Witness, uh, the Mormons, uh, you name it, even within the, the Christianity circle, you know, barking like dogs and throwing up and all the, the past uh, charismatic movement type things that have happened. You study the doctrine as well, and that's part of someone's fruit is the doctrine that comes out of their mouth. You study their doctrine, you'll find that as they begin to veer off and get a little bit weird, their their nourishment and or remaining in Jesus has gotten less and less. That's why it's so important to do worship, to be in worship, to have fellowship with Jesus, and to add to that the Word. Those two mixed together is just like that that branch, that young sapling being hooked into the trunk and continually getting that feeding of sap, having that direct connection continuously with the main source. Otherwise, you begin to veer off and you produce no fruit or you start producing bad fruit and you get cut off. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches made it very, very clear. Obviously, they couldn't misinterpret that one. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, we can do zero. If there's ever a deterrent of falling away and giving this thing up, this is exactly it. Because of some trial that you're going through or something that Jesus hasn't worked out in your favor yet, You're just going to throw everything away. Throw your birthright away like Esau did for something temporary. So I don't live my life the way I want to. No. 
Without Jesus, I can do nothing. Everything you do outside of Jesus will be done in vain. It returns no fruit. Does that make sense? Good. Verse 6. Can you hear me now? If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Can't misinterpret that one. You'll receive judgment, and not not the good kind. Verse 7. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. We said about this last uh, Wednesday, about and it ties in here as well in James. He says you're not getting what you want because you ask with the wrong motives. Well, the reason someone asks with the wrong motives is because they don't have the Word of God to correct their carnal thinking. If you put, as you put the Word in and more of it, the easier it is, is to decipher whether or not what you're thinking is right or wrong. Therefore, you're able to decide whether or not it's God's will or it's not God's will. Then, once you realize that it is and that it will please Him to seek after this, I have the freedom and I have the liberty and the clean conscience and the right motive to ask God for something. A new car, you know, or even like a new guitar. It's like, well, I don't know, I just got a new one. And I'm not, you're struggling between not wanting to be carnal or greedy about something, but at the same time, you really do want or need something. So internally, okay, how do I regulate what I feel and what I think? You do it by the Word. You remain in Him and His words remain in you. Then you'll have the proper judgment technique to understand what God wants you to do. Verse 8. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in His love. From verse 1 to 10, he says remain 11 times. 11. I think it's pretty important that he stresses that. It's no different than in Revelation, I think, from around chapter 2 to end of chapter 3, to those who overcome after the mention of each of the seven churches to those who overcome. So in the same manner, this is a very important issue that cannot be overlooked, especially by the typical doctrine of once saved, always saved. If a man doesn't remain in him, he bears no fruit. Branches that bear no fruit get cut off. Well, that, that just means that, you know, they, they may go into purgatory or they just, they're a lesser rank in the kingdom. No, he spells it out. They're picked up, they're piled together, and they're torched. They're, they receive judgment by fire. Let's go to Hebrews uh, 4. To give you a, 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 quick, a quick understanding of reading the Word and what it's like to read the Word is that it's similar to this morning when I, went to, when I sat down to study. You know, I, I tried to seclude myself. I went to a little local park, and the minute I sat down, people started coming and sitting like two benches away from me. There's like four acres of space to go, and they picked two benches away from me to sit down and talk in the foreign language. It's one thing if somebody talks in English and he's like, okay, you just discount it. 
But something you don't understand, but, and it makes you real inquisitive. How, man, what are they saying? Beyond that, somebody's setting up for a birthday party across the way. It just becomes all hectic. And I found myself getting kind of nervous. Like, man, if everyone just go away. And uh, I said, no. I'm going to start reading in the Word and just start washing my mind. Even though I may not find the exact topic. Even if I wasn't doing James 4. And I was just seeking Jesus about a topic to preach this morning. I don't have, the first minute I open the Bible, I don't have to find the very thing that God has ordained for me to read that morning. His Word is His Word. It's life. No matter what you read, His Spirit is capable of making it alive to be active in you. So I just began to read and wash my mind. It's like, that's good. About 30 minutes into it, it's like all of a sudden something clicked. My mind has had been washed and then prepared to receive the message. I equate that to like experiencing worship. You come in, you have things on your mind. And you can't, I mean, sometimes you just can't get rid of them. you got to come through the process of worship of, you know, entering into His presence of, or entering in a joyful manner into praise and kind of get, you know, sing happy songs and put aside out of your mind the things that have been going on, especially when things are rough. You guys know when you come to a certain point, not because of the song, but because of your attitude and the washing of your mind during worship, there's something that just kind of clicks. And all of a sudden you found this intimate spot, this intimate position with Jesus. And that's when worship gets real good. You get fed and you get the nourishing stuff. Well, same thing as when you read the Word. So if, if any of you guys are, are men wondering, how do I read the Word? I want to read the Word, but how? That's kind of the process that, that's going to happen. So whenever those first 30 minutes, you don't break into the, the good stuff, the nourishing sap of the Word, don't give up. Keep pressing in. Keep, just keep reading something. Go to something common. You know, it's no different than when I go to sing a song. If I, if I get to a point where I'm stuck or it's getting frustrating, I'll go to something that's very easy for my mind to process. Something that's very familiar. That way I don't have to, to dwell on it that much. I can concentrate on getting into the, the throne room of God. So if you're struggling, go, go to First John or go to John 3.16 and start at verse 1 and keep reading. And watch. As you begin to wash your mind, it'll become easier and easier to hear from the Holy Ghost of what to read and where else to go. And, uh, I mean, it can go for hours, man, of just being caught up in a spirit and going from one subject to another. It's not because you're a scholar. It's because you're led by the Spirit. Jesus said he was sent his counselor to make you know, himself known to men. So on that topic, Hebrews 4.12. It's exactly it. It's a taste of what's to come. It's cleansing your spiritual palate. Hebrews 4.12 For the Word of God is living and active. <laughs> Live. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit. Ever that point in time in your walk you guys have gone through where you, you, everything gets so foggy where you don't know if it's your mind or if it's your spirit or Jesus' spirit speaking to you? Well, how do you counter it? How do you filter it? How do you understand it? You, you break out the sword, the Word of God, and as you begin to study it, Jesus will reveal which one is which.
which is your spirit and which is your soul? What are you thinking with your natural mind and what is my spirit thinking? Going back to the original verse in, in James, these men who ask with the wrong motives, those two are very, very confused. They think that their soul is their spirit talking and neither one has received or been filtered by the word of God. Therefore, they ask with a carnal or wrong motive. Soul and spirit, joints and marrow. That's a body part. Joints. It judges thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I just, I'm being silly. I have some life in here. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. So every idle word that we say, we'll have to give an account for it. Nothing. You can hide zero. Or you can hide nothing from, from Jesus. Everything that you, that you think, that you feel is going to be laid bare. Why have to deal with it whenever you stand before Him and have dealt with it in a wrong manner? Deal with it now and repent for it and take care of it so that it doesn't fester. But much more than that, uh, you won't be ashamed when you stand before Jesus. If we're ashamed now you know, to run out in public naked, imagine someone who is standing before Jesus and has hidden themselves from the true religion, from loving Jesus with all their heart, and everything in their lives is laid bare. They're fully exposed, and they can't cover up anything. That's the type of shame that, that's going to be placed on men who do that. And so I, now, as I'm living in this body, I make everything open to Jesus. Everything of who I am and to the body around me. I hide nothing from the body. First of all, it's a, a, a matter of accountability. If everyone sees exactly who I am, the minute they see something wrong, it's easily noticeable. When someone starts falling out of fellowship, it reduces that accountability. Their lives are no longer easily examined or easily seen. It's not laid bare. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. That we are still in a section of submission to the flesh. Just to remind you guys. Chapter 8, verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live according to this, with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Correlating to John chapter 15. You remain in me and my words remain in you. This is exactly it. Having your mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of the sinful man is death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not, does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot Please, God. Let me put it in, th- in this twist. Us who are spirit-filled, if we're trying to accomplish something for Jesus, or just beyond that, just live a daily life, if I begin to walk or follow the sinful nature a little bit, it makes it harder for me to hear from the Spirit and therefore to do what He desires, which equals pleasing God. So it's not like I have to put up my spiritual antennas and wear my Jesus hat all day long. 
and be super spiritual, always on the go. But there's an inward attitude of always being on guard and on ready. Just like Peter said, you know, to give an account to anyone who asks of why I believe what I believe. But more than that, ready to bear the fruit of the Spirit and not the fruit of the flesh. To put down the Spirit and, and be led by the Spirit. Put down the flesh and be led by the Spirit. Let's go to Galatians 5. One of the first statements in, in James 4 was two, two key words, quarreling and fighting. Remember how we said, yeah, or in Romans, the sinful mind is hostile to God. But really, then right before that, the life or the, uh, the mind of the, that's led by the Spirit is life and peace. Whenever we start seeing quarreling and fighting, I think there's, there's a in some cases, a healthy or righteous indignation uh, as you're led by the Spirit to correct something or to rebuke something. But if it begins a, a quarrel, that's you know, it's nitpicking back and forth together until it just erupts into something more angry. That's absolutely of the flesh. Let's read here in uh, Galatians 5.19. Now notice what it says, the acts of the sinful nature. Highlight that. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, hmm, and witchcraft, hatred, discord or disunity, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. There's scripture we read last week. It says, uh, where you find envy and selfish ambition, there you find every form of evil practice. It's because someone is being led by their flesh. If you partake in a couple of them, you'll eventually start to participate in all of them. And this is a, a pretty good list of them. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, but he was a good man. You know, he lived a good life, and he was good, good guy, you know. Gave me, you know, drugs every week. It was great. No, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Right, let me just back up. This says in verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit. So it's not necessarily the act, acts of the Spirit, it's the fruit of the Spirit. If you want to, if you're taking notes, acts of the sinful nature, or the, the fruit of the sinful nature, is death. And the fruit of the Spirit is an act of life. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, wow, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Does gentleness require mercy? Absolutely. Trying to be gentle with somebody, you have to overlook something that's aggravating you. And self-control. I think that was an ant inside my slipper. 
I didn't have mercy on that one. Get under my feet, though. <laughs> Against such things, there is no law. Why? Why is there no law against such things? Does anybody know? Going once, going twice, three times. You're out. By performing these things, by having the fruit of the Spirit, you fulfill the law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. The second uh, section, let's go back to James 4. Starting in verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? Meaning that our God is a jealous God. But he gives us more grace, more unmerited favor. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If this were uh, the second section of submission, is submission to the world. When you start to become a friend with the world, you begin to adopt its ways, submitting your will, your mind, your actions to be like it, its own. Uh, let's go to First John 2. Uno one. First John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what he has and what he does. If you don't have it marked, mark it right there. That's the three common uh, sins of man. Everything can be boiled down to one of those three of when it regards sin. What he has and what he what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. A pretty cool analogy. One July fourth I was down on the Mississippi River back in Baton Rouge. I was born again about a year and a half. And I was fired up for Jesus and just everything I saw just resembled something uh, of his nature. But um, I was watching the fireworks and uh, you know, loud boom and the big bright flash of the fireworks. It's real bright. You could hear the whole crowd just go, ooh, ah. You know, it was, it, no, it wasn't that it had lust of the eyes, but you could just tell everyone was craving more. It would come up for a second, make a big, loud you know, presentation and flash, and it would fade away very, very quick. And it's like, man, that, was, that wasn't enough. Give me some more. Give me some more. And it would do it again and again. The cravings of the sinful nature are exactly the same. 
They're like this. I mean, they're, they're big and they have a lot of flash to them, but they're non-sustaining for life. And I, I, I looked at that and I said, you know, Jesus, I can just feel a spirit telling me there's something here about this analogy. And then I, I just got this mental image of the sun rising up in the east. I mean, it's not loud. It's just it's constant. It's this huge source of energy and this illuminating brightness. It just rises up every single day and really brings life on earth. Does the fire, do fireworks bring life? No. Get too close to them, to them you may die. <laughs> but, um, but Jesus told me, he said, the fireworks are like the pleasures and cravings of the, of the world. They come up for a second and they meet your needs, but they quickly fade away. He said, I am like the sun that rises in the east. I am constant. And I just went, whoa, that's awesome. Because in, in Jesus, he, he's not only the author and perfecter of our faith, he is the every source of life. Just going back to John 15. Outside of him, I can do nothing. What's, what's, that, what's the name of the, the day after tomorrow? It came out. This huge, you know, catastrophic uh, environmental effect happens. I don't know all the details. Global warming. You remove the sun out of the earth, Earth's atmosphere or, or interaction with the earth, and the earth will just literally die. It will become one big ice cube and, and cease to have life dwell on it. John 15. You remove Jesus out of what you do, and you kill or you remove all life from what you're trying to accomplish. Outside of him, we can do nothing. Make sense? Praise God. Third section, starting in verse 7 of James, James chapter 4. Go back. Third section is submission to God. So we had submission to the flesh mentioned, submission to the world, and now submission to God. And notice the avenue that he's taking. He just talked about speech or using the tongue. In some shape or form, he's still on that same subject. In the first section of submission to the flesh, he's talking about quarreling and fighting, things that involve the tongue, communicating with one another, uh, interaction with, uh, with the world. Uh, obviously, that takes some type of communication, especially the tongue, but more along the lines of, uh, in First in John, of having this, this love for the world. As we begin to fellowship and, and interact with the world, we begin to talk and act like the world. Our speech will change. It will no longer have life in it. It will have death. It may not have cursings, but it will just be absence of life. The third section, submission to God. Yeah. What, what James is focusing on. Friendship or no, no, no. It's not steps to do. No, no, no. These are topics that James is talking on, and it's leading into this third section. You know, they have men that submit to the flesh, and men that submit to the world. Now we're talking about men who need to submit to God, or the the product that we want to achieve. Now I'm glad you brought that up. Someone else might have been confused on tape. Verse seven, Sub, and this is where you see it. Submit yourselves then. Or really, because of all this, 
right above, the, from 1 to 6. Because of all this, submit yourselves then to God, not to the flesh, not to the world. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Whenever we submit ourselves to God, going back to that thing of opening our lives to Jesus, leaving every crevice open for Him for inspection. If Jesus permeates every part of my being, then I receive for Him that nourishing sap of being strengthened. When we resist the devil, you don't just do it on your strength. Remember, we can do nothing outside of Him. When you resist the devil, you do it in Jesus. So it's logical, spiritually logical, that the first step you take is not to just jump out and resist the devil on your own, that you do it by submitting yourself to God. Whenever I was born again, trying to give up some type of habit involving nicotine, it was dipping for me. Could I have, I have kicked that habit outside of Jesus? Yeah, but it would have taken a long time and a, a deep struggle. Instead, as I got born again, I submitted myself to God. I resisted really my flesh, not necessarily the devil. I resisted my flesh. And as I was doing that, I was doing it resisting as under submission to Jesus. Therefore, I was able to receive the power to resist the, the amount I needed to and accomplish what I wanted to do. What Really what I wanted to do, I knew it was something that God wanted to do. I was already in line. Um, let's go to First Peter. So in the same way, whenever we face trials, I don't, I don't just wake up in the morning and, uh, you know, figure out a way that I'm going to resist the devil. Because really my, my only means, if outside of Jesus, my means of combating the devil is in a natural manner. If I, if I think that he's trying to, to make me sick, it's like, I'm going to fight the devil, I'm going to take more aspirin. I, I, we have a balanced enough teaching to know that aspirin is can be useful, but that's not my first line of defense. My first line of defense is to submit myself to God, then start and resist the devil. Whether Jesus blesses that aspirin and multiplies it, its effects in my body, or if I'm healed right before I take it, it doesn't matter. My step in my process is that I submit myself to God, then I resist the devil. If you do it the opposite way around, it's no different than a soldier running ahead of the army trying to attack his enemy. You're not submitting yourself to the overall authority in order to advance and achieve the mission. 1 Peter 5, verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Praise God. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. If ever someone is in leadership, they're not there to be um, exalted or get nice houses or be, to have some type of financial gain to it. Everyone who is in ministry is there to serve, to wash the feet of others and to meet their needs. Verse 3, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples 
to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, the boss, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because, wow, is there the same verse again? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, not based on this one verse, but kind of the language of Peter and the language of James are very, very similar. There's been debate of who, what James wrote the Bible because it's like three or four uh, differences you can choose from. But I think it's Barnes, uh, Barnes's notes. He really states and points out that the language of James uh, contrasts the other types of James mentioned in the Bible is parallel to the James we know of as the brother Jesus mentioned in Acts as the, the head of the church in Jerusalem. But also, as we spend time around each other, we begin to have the same phrases, the same type of speech. No different. Peter and James were around each other. They had the same type of, of speech, even in their writing. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Hmm, seems to parallel what James is talking about. Submit yourselves then to God. Then resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Apply that right here. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. The devil came to do what three things? Mentioned by Jesus. Kill, steal, and destroy. Verse 9, resist him. Wow. Standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. One of the greatest tactics of the devil, really why he's attacking you and it's legit, it's not just your flesh, is that more than likely somebody within the body, close by you, <clears throat> is enduring that exact same thing. And the devil's tactic is to make you feel like there's no one who can relate to this. There's no one who is in my position. I'm all alone in this. And there's basically no hope for me in this matter. That I'm just going to be drowned out by this. Whenever you talk to someone who's in that same position, what happens? That anxiety or that weight lessens, if not drops off. And you begin to encourage each other. It's like, oh, this person relates. They know exactly what I'm going through. Well, good. Let's pray about it together. Let's just both sit down and intercede for one another and break this thing. When you do that, it is. So it's not so much that, or it is very powerful when we submit and humble ourselves to God's authority and power to come through while we resist the devil, but how much more when we do it as a unified body? Let's go back to James 4.
fourth section will be submission of speech or to speech. James 4, verse 11. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. I just want to stop right there. The, the idea behind this and the way it can so easily manifest is even within this room. Someone began to say about another brother, you know, I don't think they're doing such a good job at this or whatever they're in the church to do. Or I don't think they're handling their kids this well. And it, and it grows into this thing of an attitude towards them. That's what slander is going to produce. It's something real easily let in that becomes a criticism towards someone else and builds into a judgment. That's why it's so, so deadly to give criticism any leeway whatsoever. Because it can build into judgment, and that judgment can affect your attitude and your love for that person. It's already pronounced. It's already pronounced a um, a set idea about them. We don't have the authority to look at someone and say, "You are definitely going to burn in hell." I'm pronouncing judgment on you right now. It's said. It's done. Do not judge lest you be judged. That's where that fits. Basically, do not condemn lest you be condemned. Same exact thing. But, going back into the spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. We're able to properly understand or discern someone's status. Condemning someone and pronouncing eternal judgment on them, obviously we can't do. But looking at them and saying, in this state that you're at, where you're headed is hell. You you are going to burn if you die this moment. Because of the fruit that you're either, the bad fruit you're producing or the fact that you're producing zero fruit. Worldly people always want to say, don't judge me, don't judge me. No, I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to eternally sentence you. But I'll call you a spade if you are. Don't call yourself a Christian if you're not. I have the full right and authority to say, no, I know Jesus. I know those who love Jesus. And you're not in that group. You're able to give some form of conviction, not condemnation. That's the difference. So going back to this, this scripture here, do not slander one another. Do not begin to give way to this criticism that's going to bring this judgment towards someone else that may not necessarily be true. It's not verified. I mean, it's not legit. It would be one thing if I stood up and, you know, said, we all need to worship Buddha now. It would be proper for someone to say, I think Matt's kind of off the wagon, you know. His doctrine is off. That's not slander. But coming in and saying, you know, oh, the, you know, I didn't like this song, I didn't like that song, it becomes a small criticism and it builds into, I don't think Matt's called to worship. And begin to spread that around the church. That is slander. That's pronouncing this either unattested or false testimony about somebody. Let's continue in James. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. You're acting as the judge himself. Who, who better knows if, if someone is called to a certain part of ministry than the one who actually called them, the judge himself, not someone else. There is only one lawgiver and judge, 
The one who is able to save and destroy. Just highlight right here. Jesus will destroy people who do not follow him. He's not a God of reconciling the dead from hell. He's going to destroy his enemies. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 6. Now, slander may seem like a, a small thing. But going back to the James chapter 3, the tongue has the power of life and death in it. It can set a course, you know, something so small can set a course to something very, very large, such as a ship. Let's see how Paul takes slander. Chapter 6, verse 10. Actually, start at verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, there it is, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you were saying. Or some, some of, and this is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now it is important to understand that, that slanderers is something, or slander is something to be taken very serious. It can be something very deadly within the body. But also to understand. If someone does commit it, we're not going to just crucify them. Because, you know, if, if they repent in it, we got to understand that where we come from as well. We didn't originate from the depths of holiness ourselves. That we were at one time sinners. We were at one time these very people. And I'm not just talking about B.C., before Jesus came into your life. I'm talking about even into Christianity. There's nothing more than someone... Who's, uh, who realizes with sober judgment exactly who they are in Jesus after they've been born again. A statement that Keith Green makes in one of his songs uh, took me by surprise when I was first born again because he said, even the best are bound to fall. And I just, that rocked my knees, man. I was like, what? I thought that if you're really strong in this, in the beginning you'll always be that way. Not necessarily the case. Because sin come, creeps in in small manners and grows and grows and eventually kills someone's faith. And that can't happen. So even the best you see now are capable of falling. No man can do anything outside of Jesus. It's all about remaining in him and remaining in his word. All right. Fifth section. Last one. Submission to God's will. Let's go back to James 4. Is this feeding y'all? It's good. Praise God. Verse 13. Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, 
we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Um, I guess the last scripture we'll go to, to go further in detail about that will. Understand what God's will. So we've seen men who submit to the flesh, disapproval for that. Men who submit to the world, disapproval for that. The so-called method or the attitude that we take in submitting ourselves to God and also submitting our speech to Jesus and within the body in order so that we may accomplish God's will. Let's go to Romans 12. Twelve, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This, what is this? To offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual or little cliff note says, or highlight, reasonable act of worship. Many people in America um, think that act of worship is sitting in a building and dropping five bucks in an offering. So, I mean, plain and simple. No, my spiritual act of worship is not bowing to a statue, not saying a numerous amount of prayers, or even just attending a church, putting on a three-piece suit, and pretending to be godly. It's offering my body, my entire life to Jesus as a living sacrifice. The thing about living sacrifice is that when they on the altar of fire, they move. They squirm. <laughs> Same thing with us. As we become living sacrifices to God, and we endure this cleansing, this pruning, don't think it's just going to be like you, you, you know, cutting up some, some celery stalks. It's going to affect you because you're living. It's going to affect you because it's going to touch you or affect a certain part of your life that you don't really want to give up. That you have to, but you you know you really don't want to. It's going to be a sacrifice. We sacrifice or we offer ourselves as living sacrifices for anything and everything that Jesus wants to do with us. If I begin to, to claim hold of any one part of that, Jesus will make sure he disciplines the sons he loves and daughters the sons that he loves. So he'll begin to involve certain people, certain trials, certain situations that will make you relinquish control of that. And the minute that we're in full submission to God, then we're able to be a, a, a very powerful tool to advance his kingdom and do exactly what he's called us to do. Um, going back to that, that last verse in James chapter 4. Just read it over again. Verse 16. As it is, you boast and brag. I could boast and brag about our five-year plan for you know, life-changing ministries. We're going to achieve you know, a million-square-foot facility and take over the, the city of Houston. Man, I have no clue what the, what the future of this holds. All I know is that Jesus put his lampstand here. He called me and told me to come here. 
And that's exactly what I'm going to do. What takes place after that, it's up to him. It does not eliminate the use of our natural mind. There is some type of balance. I'm not trying to be Buddhist here and do yin and yang. But I'm not going to go overboard and say, well, I'm just going to close my eyes and say, Jesus, you take care of everything and not plan for anything. I won't pay my bills. Jesus, you take care of that. Wait a minute. There's some type of balance. I can go ahead and start start making preparations to achieve something in the future. But it's all with the idea that it's in submission to God. At his discretion, if he says, all right, pick up your stuff and go left or right, that's exactly what I'm doing, regardless of my plans. If my plans are in constant submission to Jesus, I cannot get upset and I don't have the ability to get upset if they're changed because they're always subject to his will. I may be kind of disappointed because of something else to look forward to. But how much more exciting to look forward to something that he's redirected me to. He, everything that he does in our life is for our benefit. It will result in more fruit, more glory, more love, and more power. Even though naturally it may not be the best thing. I always, always want to keep our mindset on what does he want, you know, looking at the spiritual aspect of it which will benefit us in the natural eventually. Let's all stand to our feet.